Galatians 3, we're starting at verse 15. The law and the promise. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that one so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we pray that um, as we look at Galatians 3 tonight, Lord God, I pray that you would um, make it clear to us what it is that you want us to learn. Lord, please uh, help me not to complicate it. Lord, we just pray that your spirit would illuminate it for us and that we would be excited about the gospel of grace that we are looking at. May we really be excited by that tonight. And may that be the thing that we take home, that we are saved by a gospel of grace. Lord God, we thank you. We pray your blessing on us now as we look at your word in your mighty name. Amen. Okay, Galatians three fifteen to 22. Now let's do a bit of a recap. I think that's helpful. Uh, for what we did last week, as you'll remember, for those of you who were here last week, um, we were looking at Paul's explanation of why it is a Christian cannot become a Christian through keeping the law. <clears throat> In chapter 3, 10 to 12, we see Paul's first full analysis, really, of the law up until this point in Galatians. That is, the law that is given to Moses. <clears throat> And his analysis of the law in 3, 10 to 12 um, is uh, in three points. You cannot become a Christian through keeping the law because of three points. One, because you can't do it. You can't keep it. You'll always break some law at some time, and unfortunately the law demands 100%ism. Point two, that's not how the law works. Because the law itself says that the righteous will live by faith not through keeping it correctly, thereby making the unfortunate point that trying to keep the law to get to God is actually breaking the law itself. And point three, it does not produce faith. Paul was saying, you only lived under the law because you had a sacrificial system in place that that covered what you couldn't live out, meaning that faith in God has not been produced, only self-righteousness has. But it is the righteous in God who will live by faith, not by the law. In short, you simply need to have faith in God. That's it. But what about Abraham, say the Judaizers? It's important. It's important to become spiritual sons of Abraham, says Paul, because Ephesians reminds us we need to be sons of Abraham to inherit Abraham's promise, which, as we saw last week briefly, is Christ himself. 
But we are not sons of Abraham through circumcision, as the Judaizers were preaching, but through faith in God. Just as Abraham himself was not under the law and he wasn't under circumcision, he simply had faith in God. And then do you remember we were saying that I look like Abraham because he had faith in God and so I have faith in God. And that is how we become sons, not through the law or not through circumcision. And finally, how is it that Abraham can be called righteous? How can I can be called righteous if we can't keep the law? Well, Paul says you do need a final sacrifice so that you can be called righteous and be free from the curse of the law. Galatians 3, 10 and 13. It reminds us that I am cursed by the fact that I can't keep the law and so I should die. But Christ dies and takes the deeper curse for me, verse 13, by nailing himself to a cross and dying the death that I can't so that I may go free. You do not need to be circumcised. You do not need to strive to achieve salvation then through living by the law because we are now redeemed from the law. We are brought back thanks to Jesus Christ who takes our curse and gives us his righteousness. That's where we finished off last week. Now, please don't worry if the recap sort of washes over you a little bit, especially if you haven't been here for these evening sessions. I think, helpfully, more than any other epistle in the Bible, Galatians really only ever says one thing, and that's it. You cannot be a Christian by works of the law. You can only be a Christian by faith in Christ alone. That's the only thing it really says. And Paul says it again tonight. And the way Paul looks at that in this passage this evening is by tackling a very obvious point. And this is the one that the Judaizers have been talking about all the time. It's the one that we get stuck on as well. And it is this. But there is a law. However you look at it, Paul, the Old Testament tells us that there is a law. It's the law of Moses. It was handed down to him on Mount Sinai. It's one of the most important times of our history. We had to keep it in order for us to be under God's rule and blessing. It forms the whole of the Torah, that is, the Old Testament Bible. We were meant to inscribe it on our heads. We were meant to wear it over our hearts. There's a law, Paul. Good point. And this is what the Judaizers were saying into that. Fine, Paul, we'll give you the fact that the promise was given to Abraham before there was anything to judge him good by in that sense. We'll give you the fact that he had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteous before he had done anything. But then the law was added to what had already been started. It means that God intended to start us out in faith, but then he needed us to complete it so that we could really achieve salvation. Paul, you're wrong. The Old Testament clearly says that we have to keep the law. The Old Testament says that we are right. And Paul fires back with, no, you're wrong. The Old Testament does talk about there being a law, but it does not say that you can get salvation through it. The Old Testament backs up my point that we are still under the covenant of faith and of grace and of promise in God. And this is how. Let's read Galatians 3, 15 to 18. Um, as we get into our first point of only two tonight, the law of Moses does not get rid of the covenant promise of Abraham. Galatians three fifteen to 18. 
To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You see, says Paul, I agree with you that the Old Testament contains the law. But you are wrong in saying that it was put there to achieve salvation or to achieve full sanctification or to add on top of faith that was already given. And let me give you a human example as to how that cannot be the case. He uses the example of the man-made covenant, doesn't he? He says no one annuls a man-made covenant or adds to it once it has been ratified. And just skipping on to verse 17 for a minute, we'll come back to verse 16 later. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Here's the problem, Paul is saying. If you're right, and the law is a new means of salvation, then the original covenant given to Abraham is null and void. And that makes sense doesn't it? Using his human example of man-made contracts. It's an easy argument to make, and it's quite simple to understand. We know how contracts work, don't we? Once you've signed something, ultimately outside of extreme cases in the courts, that's it. You can't go back and change it. Once you've written a a will out and you die, that's it. The the will is finalized. You can't go back and change it. Even at school, we don't make pinky promises in the playground and then try and change them after we've shaken on them. Even kids understand that that's, that's just not on. If we do change the terms of the original covenant or add something into that new first contract after it's been shaken on or signed or ratified, then we fundamentally change the nature of the covenant or that contract, haven't we? In fact, you've, you've got rid of it completely. It no longer stands as it once was. And Paul is saying that's not what has happened, Judaizers. That's not what has happened. The Old Testament does not say that that is the case. You can't say that we started in faith and then finished by works of the law because the two are completely separate things if that's the case. If faith by the law, let's call it, was added to the original covenant of faith in the promise, then the original covenant has been so altered that it no longer exists. Verse 17 The law does not annul, that is, remove or get rid of, a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Or to say it as the Judaizers were saying it, if you're right, then the law would remove or get rid of that covenant previously ratified by God. And this is the problem. The promise would then be void. Paul is saying that is not what is going on. And here's why. Verse 18. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. You see, however we like it, Judaizers, the covenant of God given to Abraham was one of promise. It's Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 language all over again. I will give you a nation 
I will make your name great. I will be their God. I will give you land. I will give you blessing. The covenant to Abraham is given dependent on God, therefore, and not on Abraham. You've got to trust me, Abraham, that what I'm telling you will happen. I promise you it will. That's my pact with you. This is the nature of my pact with you. It's built on promise. In other words, I promise that I will make you into a great nation. I promise that I will be your God. I promise that I will give you land. I promise that I will give you blessing. And does he? Yes. Yes, he really does. The whole of the Old Testament is there to show us that despite the people of God, he does keep his promises. Just being with the kids this morning, that's all we were looking at. God keeps his promises. As we looked at last week, Abraham has done nothing to guarantee these promises. He just trusts that God is right. And that trust is counted to him as righteousness. It makes sense then, doesn't it, that if the covenant with Moses, the law that was added 430 years later, was fundamentally different, or to put it in another way, was a completely different type of covenant, then the covenant with Abraham would have been annulled or broken up because the two are so different, because God has now somehow fundamentally changed the terms. It was once promise, but now you've got to work for it. And if that happens, it further makes sense then that we now don't have a promise of something at all. Not a promise of something definite to come, but something completely different. For if inheritance came through the law, it no longer comes by promise. The promise has been removed. It has been made void. And in its place is now an exam by which I am judged to be good or not, and I find myself constantly failing it. I've not got a promise anymore, but an unreachable target to hit. I've not got a promise anymore, but an unsaleable mountain to climb. In short, if the Judaizers are right, then we're lost. We've lost the first covenant of faith and of promise, and we now have a new covenant of works and law. Faith alone doesn't count anymore, only works that bring us somehow to faith. What's Paul's point in all of this then? Judaizers, you're wrong about the law, because 1 verse 17, the law does not annul the original covenant, as you suppose. And 2 verse 18, the law does not change how the inheritance is given to us. Meaning, therefore, that the covenant of the promise, the original covenant with Abraham, must still stand even under the law. And if that's the case, it further means that the law of Moses and the covenant of the promise of Abraham have to be both about the promise that was already given. One does not annul the other. The law then is a different administration of the same covenant of grace. It is the same God that institutes the covenant with Abraham as is the same God who institutes the covenant with Moses on Sinai. They are not two contrary covenants. And this is what the Jews were, Judaizers were getting wrong about the law. Paul says, you're not wrong about the law being there. 
you're very wrong about what it actually is. You are completely misappropriating it. The law was not added, so now we needed to climb it and be saved through the law. That's not how covenants work. That's not how contracts work. God has not changed his mind. And he makes very one important, brilliant point in verse 16. Read that with me. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is where we take one of our little breaks to explain what's going on here. What on earth is Paul talking about? Now, if we would sort of flip back to uh, Genesis 12 and 17, where we read of the promise originally given to Abraham, we see the word offspring being used quite a lot. Or in the NIV, I think the word is seed. And as we know, these words are both plural and singular, aren't they? Offspring and seed are like sheep and fish. I have one sheep, I have many sheep. I have one fish, I have many fish. But Paul is saying, no, I'm not talking about um, many offsprings. I'm talking about one offspring. I'm just using the singular of that word, not the plural. Now, why does he say this? Well, he says it principally because offspring and seed is used plurally more often than it isn't. God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 5, look towards heaven, Abraham, number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Now, it's obvious there, isn't it, that God is using the word offspring to mean many offsprings. In fact, billions of offspring, if we think about how many stars there are in the sky. And even Paul himself in Romans uses the word plurally. So what is he saying here in Galatians? Paul, ultimately by the Spirit, is using a wonderful understanding of the Old Testament. He is saying, as bold as brass, Judaizers, there are two meanings to the word offspring in the covenant of Abraham. The plural, meaning the sons of Abraham, us who will be called sons from all the nations of the world due to their faith in God, as we looked at last week. But it can also be used singularly, meaning there is one person who is the important offspring, indeed who is the promise. And that person is Christ. And as we reminded ourselves last week, Christ was to come from the line of Abraham and be the promise. That is, it was to be him who blessed the nations. It was to be him who brought the Gentiles into the line of Abraham. It was to be him who brought the nations of the world to faith. It was to be him who fulfilled the right requirements of the law, lived the perfect life, and died on the cross for us. There's one offspring. There's one promise. Now, why is this important in terms of the law? Because if the law does do away with the promise of Abraham in the original covenant, then Christ simply is not needed. Or to put it another way, because Christ is, the law has not done away with the promise. Can you see that? In verse 16, Paul is very simply linking the promise of Abraham to the fact of Christ. Christ is there, which means the law has not done away with the promise. You see, the Judaizers were fundamentally inconsistent. 
That's what, the, that's what Paul is bringing up here. You cannot believe in Christ and live according to the law. Because if you live according to the law, you nullify the covenant of the promise of Abraham. And if you nullify the promise of Abraham, which is Christ himself, then you do away with Christ. Galatians 2.21, we come back to this time and time again. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That still stands. My position has not changed, says Paul. The law has not done away with the promise. To recap then, the law is not a method of salvation, It is not a way to righteousness because 1, verse 17, it does not annul the original covenant, which is still the method of salvation, faith in God. 2, verse 18, it does not change how we inherit the promise. We are still righteous by faith alone in Christ. And 3, verse 16, it does not get rid of the need for Christ, who is the promise himself in the Abrahamic covenant, who still came and who still died. So then, the law of Moses does not get rid of the covenant promise of Abraham. Judaizers, you're wrong. Meaning, salvation cannot come through keeping the law. But this leads us on to a fantastic question. Why then the law? What is going on? If the law, which is definitely there in the Old Testament, is not a second covenant that does away with the first one, and if the law is not to be something that we have to keep in order to get salvation, then why on earth do we have it? Or more succinctly, what is it? What does it do? What is it there for? And this brings us nicely to our second point of the evening. The law of Moses points to Christ and shows obedience by faith. Let's just read the next section together. Galatians 3:19 to 22. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Anyone want to have a stab at that? (laughs) This is possibly one of the trickiest passages. It really is one of the trickiest passages in the New Testament. To the point where I'm going to declare my hand early... (laughs) along with nearly everyone else that I've listened to on this subject, and say that I have no real idea what the second half of verse 19 or verse 20 are really talking about. Let me just quote that to you. That the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I know that's disappointing. (laughs) I'm so sorry. It's one of those verses that when read, everyone's like, oh, I'd love to know what that means. I really want to know what that means. Now, I have my thoughts. And um, for sake of time and brevity and you not falling asleep, it's definitely not worth me going through them. Uh, Apparently, there are over 330 individual readings as to what this could be. And I do have my own thoughts on this. And please believe me, I have 
really work through this. Um, if you have ideas, that's great. Come and tell me afterwards. Feel free to email me. Um, if you've nailed it tonight, that's really helpful. Um, and um, I can send you things if you want to know more about that later. But I'm not making any apologies. That's it. <laughs> Moving on. Why then the law? Why then the law? Great question, and it is a good question. Because if we're brutally honest, the law seems redundant at best. If it doesn't do anything to the first covenant, and at worst, if it just, it just seems to complicate matters. Why did God put it in? Why then the law? Well, there are two answers to this. They're both found in verses 19 and 22. And in some ways, these two verses are complementary to each other. And the first answer to why the law is there is found in the first half of verse 19. It was added because of trans. What does that mean? I think this is a very typical Pauline kind of answer, isn't it? Why then the law? That's a great question, Paul. That's exactly what I was thinking. What's the answer? It was added because of transgressions. I have no idea what that means. It's really hard. That's not what I was thinking. What does it mean? It sounds like it's saying it was added because of sins. Well, I think that's right. Principally for two reasons. The law came... In other words, that it might expose sin and provoke it. The law came to expose sin and to provoke it. Now, this can be quite difficult to understand. To help us a little bit, let's just flip back to Romans. Uh, I think this would be good for all of us to do. We're only going to do this very, very quickly. That's Romans, page 942. And we're going to look at Romans 5.20. Paul uses very similar language here in 5.20. Just the first half. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. It's very similar language. So he's saying here that the law has come so that we can see our sin growing. Now, hold that thought and flip back to Romans 4.15, where we read this by Paul. 4 verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And as helpful as that may sound, that sentence actually makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense because very simply, if there is no law, how do I know that what I'm doing is right or wrong? That's his point. How do I know that what I'm doing is good or bad? The law is given then to expose sin in the people of God or to show up sin to the people of God. You see? The law was added so the people of God actually knew what sin was. Or to put it another way, the law was added so that they could see that they were sinful. We now have a benchmark for it. And when the law arrives, they find that they're breaking it. If there is no law, then there is no transgression. Why then the law? It was added so that the people of God could see what they were doing and that the way they were living was wrong, was contrary to a loving, powerful, holy God. And the first half of verse 22, back in Galatians 3, says pretty much the same thing, but with a slightly different focus. But the scripture, and by scripture he means the book of the law, the Torah, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Sounds really harsh. But that also makes sense. 
If the people of God are now sinning because the law is given, verse 19, and if, as Paul says, they are under a curse if they don't keep the law, back in verse 10, then it makes sense that they are imprisoned under it, in verse 22. In short, the law was necessary for the people of God to see how lost they were, to see how hopeless and helpless they were. The law turns all of their private distrust, pride, selfishness, and hurt into open transgression. And I'll see myself for who I really am. And it's awful. I can't hide anymore. And not only that, but not only that, but when we meet the law, our sin seems to get worse. Romans 7 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. We know this is true on an everyday basis, don't we? Especially those of us who have been around a child for any length of time. Don't do that, and then you see them go off and do it. We know what that feels like. Why does the Lord do that? Principally to show just how lost the people of God were, and to show in very vivid terms how they could not keep the law even if they tried. What an answer to a simple question. The law was added to reveal sin and to imprison those sinners under it. It's awful. But there is a second answer. And this is really important. This is found in the second half of verses 19 and 22. Why then the law? Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Why then the law? Verse 22, exactly the same. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, the law is given so that the people of God could see how sinful they were and in the very same moment to see that they needed to be rescued from that. That they needed a rescuer. And the covenant of promise showed that there was one. Understanding this then, we can see that the law is not a bad thing. Romans 7, 7, is the law sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin was. The law shows up the desperate need of the people. And the law shows them that they need a saviour. That's what the law did. It points them to the promise. It pointed them to Christ. The law is good. The law shows up the sin of the people of God. It helps them to see themselves for who they really are. And it helps them to see their need for a savior. And it helps them to see that they need to be saved by grace. The law then is another administration of the same covenant. Galatians 3.21, is the law contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But what about this imprisoned language? What's going on there? Galatians 3.22, the law imprisoned the people so that the promise of faith might be given. Well, I think the reason for this is, 
And the reason that we have this other administration of the same covenant of grace given 430 years later is all down to the way God works. This is really important. And this is what we call redemption history. God has set a timeline in place whereby over the centuries he shows us how his salvation plan works as he unfurls it out in front of us. Abraham was chosen for nothing that he had done and was made righteous because he believed in God. The law was then added so that the world and the people could see how bad they were and consequently that they needed a savior, that they needed to believe in the promise. And then Christ came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. That is, as we've been looking at, to be the one that the law was pointing to, the promise of Abraham. We have a perfect picture of redemption. Salvation was only ever by faith in God alone, by grace in Christ alone. Enter Abraham, that's what that's for. Salvation was made clearer to us, or our sin was made known to us so that we could see our need for a saviour because of the law. Enter Moses. And salvation was only ever possible and complete by someone who could take the curse for us. That is the promise of Abraham. Enter Jesus Christ. The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law was added so that the people of God could see that they were lost until such a time as God would send his son. He was born into the line of Abraham who would physically free them from the curse of the law. And here's the thing. All the while, through whichever period of history we were born in, whether we are under Abraham, whether we're alive under the law of Moses, whether we're alive under the time of Christ, being a a believer, being a Christian, has always been the same. It was always that you believed in the promise. Abraham believed in the promise. That is, he believed in Christ, even if he didn't know what that fully looked like. Moses believed in the promise. That is, he believed in Christ, even though he didn't know what that actually fully looked like. We believe in the promise. That is, we believe in Jesus Christ. Except we have the remarkable privilege of knowing exactly what that looks like. What does all this mean? What does it mean for us, for those of us who are now born outside of that time of the law? Well, if we take both parts of tonight's passage and come up with a working definition of what the law is, it can simply be called a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant that points us to Christ. And how did the law then really work for the people of God? If we were to go back to Abraham in Genesis, we would see that as soon as Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness, he was then given a task to perform. Namely, to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar. And he does so, and God intervenes for him. Abraham's obedience very much proved that he very much trusted in God. Abraham obeyed God, but look at which way round it goes. Abraham is first counted as righteous. And so he obeys. Which comes first in redemption history? First the promise to Abraham, then the law to Moses. 
As John Stott says, the promise always has precedent over the law, but the law shows us how to live in the light of the promise. And that does make sense, doesn't it? How do I know I trust my doctor? I can chat to her and I can listen to all her advice and I can tell her everything that's wrong with me, but if I'm then given a prescription and throw it in the bin, I obviously don't trust her. The prescription tells me how it is I am to put my trust in her and what I am to do in the light of that trust, namely to take some pills for a required amount of time that will get me better. How do the people of God trust in God? They can court him all day long, they can listen to his advice, and they can say that they trust him. But if they are not wanting to obey with what he spells out to be the best for their intentions, then they don't trust him. The law tells them that they are to put their trust in a good God, namely to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and all our soul and with all of our mind and strength and to love each other as I would love myself. It makes sense. The law then allowed the people to see what living by faith looked like. And that's what the Judaizers missed. They missed it. They missed Exodus 14.31, where the people of Israel were finally free from the Egyptians. And we read, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the law and they believed in him. Salvation through faith. But people already saved, followed up by a fear and belief in him. They missed that. They missed Psalm 119, verse 17 to 18. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may then live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may then behold wondrous things out of your law. Obedience through faith. God dealing with them graciously first and then allowing them to live according to the word which they find wondrous. They missed Exodus 20, verse 2, the very first commandment, the very heart of the law, which starts with the astonishing words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's a done deal. You shall have no other gods before me. Saved by grace alone, followed up by obedience as a consequence of having already trusted in him. The Judaizers missed it. The true nature of the law was pitted all over the Old Testament and they missed it. They missed that the law was not there to circumvent being saved by grace, but to prove that you had to be. Now, how do we see the law? We don't see the law of getting rid of grace and now something that I need to keep. The Judaizers were trying to do that. That is now not true. We live in a time of history where we are not imprisoned under the law. We are able to see Christ, the person who sets me free from that curse. And what does it mean for us as we close? And we will close here. It means I don't need to be perfect because that is not how I am saved. Abraham mucked up. Moses mucked up. We all muck up. But because the law has not changed the covenant of promise or of grace, we are allowed to come back to the God of grace and acknowledge our brokenness. And he is not surprised. He takes us back because he sees Jesus' perfect standard as my righteousness and not my own. That's the promise. It also means that we have full assurance that our salvation is safe. Because the law has not changed the covenant of promise or of grace. 
meaning we now have a God who is unchanging. He has not changed the rules. He is gracious. He has always been gracious. Under the law, he was gracious, and he will always be gracious. Sometimes a passage doesn't give us much to do, but something to enjoy. And Galatians just does that to us. I can now enjoy Christ. He is my righteousness. God has not changed the promise. Christ still stands. Therefore, says Martin Luther, the principal purpose of the law is not to make men better, but to make them see that they are worse. That is, it shows them their sins so that by recognition of it, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down so that they may long for the grace that saves and that they would long for that one blessed offspring. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much um, that you are a God of grace. Thank you that that has not changed Heavenly Father, thank you that the law does not scare us anymore. The law does not imprison us. Thank you that the promised, the offspring, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has saved us from the law and saved us from the curse of the law by being our righteousness, by dying on the cross in our place. Well, that is astonishing truth. Heavenly Father, help us to live like that is true. Help us to enjoy being people of grace, to know that we are so loved that God would do something about our desperate situation and send his son to die for us. Lord God, we do praise you for that. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this wonderful gospel. We pray that you would uh, keep teaching it to our hearts as we teach it to each other as well this week. In your strong name, amen.